Sometimes we think of people's last words as extra significant. Uh, when people have their wits about them, when people are clear in their thinking and purposeful about their words, some of the most profound things they say, uh, they say at the very end. Today what we're going to do is hear from Jesus and we're going to hear his last words. Jesus who was always clear thinking, uh, every syllable on purpose uh, throughout his entire life. But Jesus' last words to the religious leaders. So not his last words, but his last words to the religious leaders. And they are profound. They are memorable. They are significant. If you have a Bible, you can find Matthew 23 or the 23rd chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus' last words to the religious leaders of Israel. But before we read them, maybe to set the tone and tenor of things, we should back up just a little bit in chapter 23, and I'd like us to read the last words before the last words, um, the penultimate last words, if you like fancy words. So let's reread the woes that we studied last week, these severe uh, statements of condemnation. Jesus is not talking to, to people in general. He's not talking to the disciples. He has... He has his scopes set, his scope set, and he is aiming at the religious leaders, and they're devastating. And so I want that to be the flavor in the air, so to speak, before he comes to the very end of what he says. Let's hear these woes once again. It's a lengthy section, but certainly we have time, beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to, ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tomb, the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come Upon this generation. My question for you as we now look at the last words, having heard those terrible words, those awful words, maybe I should say, why would Jesus say such awful things? Why would he take aim at the religious leaders who are a part of the right religion with the right book? with the right vocabulary, naming the right God, why would Jesus speak such words of condemnation, such terrible words? And I think our remaining words answer that question. And so what we'll do this morning as we look at verses 37 to 39, that's what we're going to study this morning. As we do that, I'm going to highlight... Four answers to the question, why such terrible words from Jesus? Why such awful words aimed at religious leaders from Jesus? Number one, the terrible words of Jesus are due to terrible perversity. Terrible perversity. If something is perverse, it means it's turned inside out. It can't get any more wrong. It can't get wronger, if I could say it that way, because that's wrong. It's twisted, it's convoluted, it's not right, it's fundamentally not right. And so Jesus locks and loads and lets them have it, lambasting them because they're spiritually perverse. They're supposed to be shepherds, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're supposed to be pointing people to Messiah. They're supposed to be pointing people outside of themselves, looking for help from the outside, from none other than God. And they are perverse. And so Jesus, Jesus doesn't go around blasting everybody and anybody like this. He speaks differently to different people. But his last words to the religious leaders who are supposed to be trusted are these severe words because they are spiritual perverts which is gross, I know, but I want it to be gross. It is gross to be entrusted with people, with the care of people and to then misuse that care and to keep them from what the ultimate would be, which would be forgiveness of sins. Not just mistreating them in the here and now, but it has lasting effects. If anybody should be under the condemnation of Jesus, it would be these who mislead people and it affects their life now and in eternity. And so they can't be severe enough. 
really. But let's look at our text. Don't take my word for it. Notice what Jesus says in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, if it stopped there, you'd, you'd think it's, this is going to be good, right? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Jerusalem. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, Israel, Jerusalem, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you before, uh, you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you'd expect Jerusalem, Jerusalem, apple of my eye. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, land of milk and honey, chosen people, specially known by God. See, those are the words that should come after in light of what we know from the Old Testament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, 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 the place where you can go to le- learn the truth about Yahweh, the one true and living God, not like the gods of the nations. And we could go on and on and on. What Israel was called to be, what Israel was called to do. But now let's read it the right way. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And not the prophets of Baal either, right? He, he's, he's clearly talking about the Old Testament prophets. So what do, what do prophets do? Prophets speak for God. God sends unique messengers like John the Baptist. He would be one. Isaiah would be one. There are many other ones. And they come with a message proclaiming the truth that comes from God. And if they come to the people of God, which is, the, which is typically where they go, they come to the people of God, sent by God, speaking the word of God. The people of God should say, Welcome! We're so glad. Here's the microphone. Everybody, listen, we're the leaders. And so if we're good leaders, we say, listen to the true prophet of God. What he says goes. And so you see how perverse it is, how twisted it is. They don't give them the microphone. They give them stonings. They kill them. We love God, we love God, we love God. We just hate His Word and we hate His prophets and we kill His messengers. It doesn't get more backward and convoluted and twisted and perverse. This is is an awful, awful reality. And even the grammar that, that Jesus uses here, this is pattern. This is who you are. This is what you do. This isn't a oops this, this speaks to character, even in the Greek text. It's no wonder he gives the, the woes. This is reputation talk. So when you drive into Jerusalem, the sign reads, Welcome to Jerusalem, land flowing with milk and honey. Could be that. Welcome to Jerusalem, the city of Shalom. Right? Welcome to Jerusalem. And welcome to Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And therefore, despises the God they claim to love. Or we could make it shorter when you drive across the river and enter into Jerusalem. Welcome to Jerusalem, city of hypocrites. Fakers, 
actors. It's pretty devastating. It's pretty awful. It's really awful. It's horrific. So it's no wonder that Jesus says, damn you, damn you, damn you, when he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, addressing those leaders. Even the right religion, right book, right name, right vocabulary, I could be using it all and be teaching something fundamentally contrary to the real deal because they are. This is why religion is such a dangerous thing. It really is. Frighteningly so. Awfully so. Time for being cordial is over. Jesus takes off the gloves. Jesus is letting them have it. If, if what they were doing was trivial, if what they were doing was over secondary kinds of issues, Jesus would be a little excessive giving all of these woes. But I'll be the last person to say Jesus is being excessive. I think Jesus is always doing the right thing. And so even by him doing what he's doing, it shows us that it's called for. And it should show us something of the awfulness of what they were up to. Now before we move on, I do want to pause and dig in a little bit on something that is obvious, but maybe it's so obvious we've forgotten about it. What do prophets do if they're true prophets? They speak. They, they, they speak for God. They have an authoritative message from God. But if we were to take the time and start reading through different prophets in the Old Testament, which would be a good exercise to do, and we're reading through, time and time again, the prophets tend to emphasize and focus on preaching God's, starts with an L, God's law is what they do. I mean, this is what God requires. This is what God requires. Not what you bozos are doing. So they say things like, repent, right? So here's what God expects. Here's what God requires, justice. Here's what God requires, obedience. Here's what God requires, devotion. This is what the prophets do. It's their pattern of speaking, of prophesying. What I would like to encourage you with is to think in terms of these Sometimes we think the Pharisees and the scribes, their problem was they emphasized God's law too much. Think about it. If they emphasized God's law too much, they would have given the microphone to the prophets. They would have said, platform is yours. They, they, I actually would suggest to you something that might be counterintuitive to what you may or may not have learned in Sunday school. Their problem might have been legalism, adding their own laws that are attainable and achievable. But their problem wasn't that they didn't emphasize... Their problem wasn't... They were too into law. I'm going to suggest to you they weren't into law enough. The true law. Otherwise, they would have said, Prophet, speak up. Oh, that's right. We are supposed to do that, but we don't. And then the people would have said, would have said, yeah, when we hear God's law, we know we don't do it. What, what should we do? We're, we're in trouble. And the true spiritual leaders would have said, that's right, you are in trouble. And so therefore you're not okay. And by keeping our lesser laws, you're not okay. 
And what they would have been able to do then is, like Abraham in Genesis, look outside of themselves to be right with God, to look for a righteousness outside of themselves that could only come by believing in God's promises that would ultimately come through the ultimate lamb. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, as law-keeping. It wasn't because he was a law-keeper. It was credited to him as righteousness, credited to him as law-keeping. See, out of desperation, Abraham, or you can read Romans chapter 4. It talks about Abraham in this way. Abraham understood the law that the prophets were preaching and could, in effect, say, I can't do that. I need help from the outside. I need God to give it to me graciously. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm borrowing from the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 10 uh, because he talks about this very thing. The religious leaders would come up with their own laws that are doable. And therefore, they wouldn't emphasize God's law, which calls for perfect loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, perfect loving neighbor as self, which as sons and daughters of Adam is not doable. They came preaching God's law and they got executed for it. I would suggest to you that we need to make sure we know what God does require because then we can say, I can't do it. I need help from the outside. And ultimately we'll look to the ultimate Passover lamb. We'll look to Jesus Christ who is called the righteous and we'll look for salvation because we can't, uphold God's requirements. The awful, awful reality is the people didn't think they needed Christ if they're listening to the religious leaders because they can just keep doing law light instead of facing the impossibility of actually keeping God's law and saying, I can't do it and then I need Messiah to be my substitute. We don't often think in these terms. So I would encourage you, here's your homework, go home and read the prophets. And and just Step into their harshness, okay? And don't think, well, I suppose we could do all of these things if God would just enable us. Uh, I, I would encourage you to just just let them let them have it. Let, let, let them whack you down or whatever it is we want to say. Just just step into step into it for all that it is. It's daunting. It's awful. It's impossible as a son and daughter of Adam, which should cause you to say, Yeah, that's right. We need Messiah. We need Messiah. Okay. I just want to keep talking about that because Jesus came, 121, to save his people from their sins, to save them from their law-breaking. But if you think you're a law-keeper, you'll never need a Savior. And they didn't need a Savior according to the Pharisees. I didn't need a savior. Okay, I promise we'll go faster on some of these other ones. Uh, Let's go ahead and move to another answer to the question, why the terrible words? The terrible words of Jesus are not because Jesus is terrible. Okay, it's not because he's terrible. Don't get the wrong idea. He's not overly brash. He's not overly, he's he's not unmerciful. He's not uncompassionate. Let's keep reading verse 37, noting the tenderness and and compassion. How often would I have gathered your children together So he's talking to the leaders about their spiritual children, those that they've been entrusted uh, care of. Uh, So speaking figuratively there, how often would I have gathered your children together, Israelites in general, as a 
hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. So do notice the kindness. Do notice the the gentleness uh, that we see here with Jesus. So he is adopting the, the figure of a mother hen who provides protection, who provides care, who provides for the needs of her own. Jesus is likening himself to such a mother hen. Now, I don't know this for sure. Some scholars think this is true, so let's pretend like it's true for a little while. May, may or may not be, but some New Testament scholars would say and say that Jesus is using the hen metaphor, the hen word picture, in contrast to Rome, whose metaphor would be the eagle, which is true. Does Jesus have that in mind here? I'm not sure, but let's think it through a little bit. So Rome has been oppressing Israel. They've occupied Israel, right? They're, they're under the thumb of Caesar, if you will, and, and the, his underlings and Herod. They don't like this. This is not good. This is bad. Uh, and Jesus, the Messiah, would be like a mother hen protecting, taking care of, so that you're not harmed meeting your needs of or in the metaphor. Well, all of that's actually true, whether or not he has Rome, the eagle, in mind or not. Eagles do eat chicks. In fact, they eat actual chickens. I was just reading a weird article about it, but I digress. Uh, it's interesting where sermon prep takes you sometimes. Um, around the world and chicken farms. <sighs> but you get the idea. I'm the protector. I'm the provider That's what a Messiah would do here with this chicken kind of metaphor. Gathering them together as well. And he says, and you are not willing. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is what James 5.11 says, full of of compassion and merciful. Luke chapter 19, maybe a day or so before this, Jesus wept over the city. So don't have Jesus be one-dimensional. He cares He's concerning. I think I've said it a million times already, but compassionate with this imagery involved here. Also something interesting that I don't want to miss before we move on in verse uh, 37. There's something in 37 that doesn't jump off the page at first until you stop and think about it. Um, How often I, uh, excuse me, how often would I have gathered your children together? Jesus is, is really... Claiming something big, claiming something bold. I would be that one. Uh, that's a, that's, that's surely a messianic claim. I would be the one to do it. So yes, Jesus is a prophet. He's the ultimate prophet, but that actually has him making a claim to be more than a prophet. I would be the gatherer. I would be the Messiah. I would be the one to pro- provide and protect. It's quite a statement that he makes here, even though we don't quite notice it if we're not slowing down and paying attention. And yet, there's harshness that comes out again, isn't there, in verse 37, at the end? You were not willing. You were not willing to do what is good for people, what is good according to the will of God. So again, why the woes? Well, he's now back to the negative because they're spiritual bad actors. It's what the people need They need Messiah. And these leaders who would profess to believe in Messiah, 
cut the people off. Instead of telling the people, go to him, go to him, go to him, like John the Baptist did. They say, don't, don't, don't. Well, before we move on, just one little side note here. Please make sure that you don't misquote Jesus. And I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but lots of people misquote Jesus here and misunderstand, and they misquote him and they say, I wanted to gather you and you were unwilling. And he actually doesn't say, I wanted to gather you, but you were unwilling. I wanted to gather your children and you were unwilling. And this actually plays into the whole debate between Arminianism and Calvinism. Uh, and oftentimes it's, well, Jesus wanted to, but they didn't want to, and therefore they win. Uh, and so Jesus tries and Jesus fails. Now, this doesn't solve all of the arguments. There's more involved. Um, but let's at least, my dear Arminian friends, um, at least don't misquote Jesus. He's addressing the leaders about their children. He's not addressing the leaders about themselves. Again, it's not a slam dunk either way, but oftentimes it's, it's misused. Now I want to see a show of hands. No, I don't want to see a show of hands. <laughs> Let's try to have integrity. Okay, number three, in answering the question, why such terrible words, the terrible words of Jesus, complement coming terrible judgment. They complement coming terrible judgment. How about verse 38? This is severe. See, your house is left to you desolate. What's a house ideally supposed to do? A house ideally is supposed to provide protection, protection from the elements, protection from intruders, protection from people who would want to take your stuff. It's a place for where you can um, relax. It's a place for where for you can to have enjoyment because you have rest from your work. Uh, an ideal house would do these things. And so here he says, your house is left to you desolate. And as an aside, I counted just recently 154 times. Israel itself is called the house of Israel. So the whole nation is supposed to be this place that's likened to a house. It's where you go for rest. It's where you go to have the land and milk of hu- milk and honey. It's where you go for protection. It's where you go to experience the great things about life. Okay? The house of Israel. House of Israel. I won't say it 140 sometimes. Um, but they're known for that. As a nation. And here he says, your house is left to you desolate. It's not a place for safety, of safety. It's not a place of protection. It's not a place for rest. It's not a place for those things. It's desolate. It's the same word that's sometimes translated desert. It's deserted. And he's talking about Israel. It's actually even used, the Greek word is actually even used in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, sometimes translated wilderness. Like in Genesis chapter, no, excuse me, Exodus chapter 14, verse 3. And you say, why would that be important? Think, 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 think with me. Talking to Israelites, talking to Israelites about the wilderness. And now he's likening their nation to the wilderness. In Pat vernacular, Pat speech, this place is about to be turned into a parking lot. It's awful. 
It's awful. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Remember, all along, these things were never designed to be ends in and of themselves. The priests, the sacrifices, all of these things were designed, the author of Hebrews tells us, to be types and shadows, anticipating the substance which belongs to Christ. He is the ultimate priest, fulfillment. He is the ultimate lamb that takes away the sin of the world, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate Passover lamb, the apostle Paul would have us to know. And they refuse to acknowledge Him for who He is. And they say, we're just going to stick with the shadows. And Jesus is saying, the day of shadows is over. Read chapter 24 with me, if you would, just by way of preview. Chapter 24, verse 1. We'll only read verses 1 and 2. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to, a, to point out the temple buildings to Him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, earnestly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Deuteronomy 31, land of milk and honey, devastated. Done. This is, this is spicy stuff. This is, this is paradigm changing kind of stuff. And in 70 A.D., that very thing happens. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Christians like to reference Josephus a fair amount, not because he's perfect, but because he's not a Christian, uh, because he's a Jewish historian talking about these things. And so Josephus gives us some insight sometimes. This is Josephus from the Jewish War uh, volume. To give a detailed account of their outrageous conduct is impossible. This is all viewing 70 AD stuff where Rome just unleashes on Jerusalem and Israel. To give a detailed account of their outrageous conduct is impossible. But we may sum it up by saying that no other city has ever endured such horrors. And no generation in history has fathered such wickedness. In the end, they, in the end, they brought the whole Hebrew race into contempt in order to make their own impiety seem less outrageous in foreign eyes and confess the painful truth that they were slaves, the dregs of humanity, another word I won't read from the pulpit at Omaha Bible Church, and outcasts of their nation. In another text, uh, a little while later, he says, every trace of beauty had been blotted out, and nobody who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. When he was already there, he would still have been looking for the city. So uh, here we are traveling, and, and I, know, I know we're getting close. I know we're getting close to Jerusalem. Uh, it's got to be here pretty soon. I've been here before. It's great. Wait till you see it. I, I, I know it's, I, I think we're, we should be about there. Maybe it's just up over that hill. At least according to Josephus, no, they're actually walking there. I think Jesus' words came true. Josephus, not a believer in Jesus, thought they came true too. 
I won't keep reading about all the lumber and platforms and all the things they had to do to prepare to devastate the city. It's kind of fascinating to read. Jesus said it was going to happen, and that's what happened. Okay, let's move on to number four, finally. Number four, the terrible words of Jesus do not mean that there is no hope. The terrible words of Jesus do not mean there's no hope. How about verse 39? For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So to the positive, then I want to talk about it negatively for a second, until people see Jesus of Nazareth or conclude that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the long-awaited, ultimate, anointed king, protector, provider, sustainer, savior, until they make that messianic declaration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they connect the dots to Jesus of Nazareth, there won't be blessing. But what's implied here is that there will be. Okay, there is, there is a hopefulness there, there is a connecting of the dots when people will say, He is that one. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And then blessing comes. Salvation blessing and other blessings. But let's look at it negatively at first because I'm kind of grumpy. No, I'm not actually. But sometimes the negative helps us to understand the positive. For I tell you, you will not see me again. That's bad. It's bad to not see Jesus. Think with me about why I would say that and why that's significant. They've been seeing Jesus, okay? He's been on the scene. They've been seeing him and they've even been seeing him with their ears because he's been teaching. He's been teaching like nobody has ever taught, like in Matthew chapter 7, and people find it refreshing and, and extraordinary and amazing his teaching is. So when he's present, people are blessed, in other words. When they're with him, when they see him, as they've been seeing him now for some 33-ish years, blessing has come, right? He's been doing all sorts of amazing things, not just teaching. He's been providing for people's physical needs on countless occasions, at least according to what we know. Uh, not only that, other than the ones written down in Scripture, uh, he's been healing people physical needs. He's even been raising the dead. When they've been with him, in other words, when he's been here, the incarnate one, good things have happened. The world has been blessed. Let's just focus on Jerusalem and Israel. They have been blessed. They've experienced the extraordinary. I put it in these terms. They've, they've experienced the foretaste of the ultimate They've been seeing he is the one. He can do what an ultimate Messiah can do and only what the ultimate Messiah can do. He's actually the one. And blessing, 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 blessing. And when you have the foretaste, you're waiting for it to enter into its fullness. Isn't it going to be great? Isn't it going to be awesome when there's no more death? Is it going to be awesome when we have no more physical needs? They're all met by ultimate Messiah. That's the right kind of conclusion. But the leaders of Israel say, he's not the one. In fact, we want to have him killed, which is what they've been doing. 
And so they're not going to see him anymore and that's going to lead to bad things. It's a form of judgment. It's a form of condemnation. But that glimmer of hope, which I think is more than a glimmer of hope, is in that word until. They're going to see him again. And I'm going to read into it. That seeing is they're going to experience his blessings, his presence, his unique blessings. And what's cool is when you get to the book of Acts, from the human perspective, human eye, countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and women and boys and girls connect the dots. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they're redeemed and they're saved and they're provided for. And then from the human eye, countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Gentile, non-Jewish men and women and boys and girls also we see in the book of Acts connect the dots supernaturally by the Spirit of God. Jesus of Nazareth, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior, Provider, Protector. The until word is a good word. Until word is a good word. Well, we are out of time and need to wrap things up. As a conclusion, Jesus addresses different people different ways. First, it was the disciples taking them aside in the opening verses. Then it's lambasting the religious leaders. And then it's connecting dots as to why he would do that. I want to remind you that Jesus does say to people like us, I'm going to take my religious leader hat off for a second. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And I would remind you of that. This lambasting isn't aimed at you unless you are a false religious leader. The invitation is aimed at you. If you want help from those clowns, or if you want help because you've come to know you can't keep God's commandments, Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you Shabbat. I will give you rest. It's a spiritual rest. It's an eternal rest. It's a confident kind of rest. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great time together studying your word. There's so much that we still don't know and would like to know, but we're thankful to know what we do know. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who illumines our minds. We're thankful for the new birth. We're thankful for the great promises that are amen for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your amazing plan of redemption that only you could have come up with. Work in people's hearts. Grant saving faith. Grant repentance that we might sing the praises that are worthy of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.